Does any of this sound familiar? Are you struggling with getting people to convert from social media fans and followers to actual donors? Can you get your email list to donate at the rate that you want? And do you find that you want a step-by-step guide to actually getting people to take the action that you need using your website, email, and social media channels? Well, then you're in luck. I created the digital fundraising formula to walk you step-by-step through this process and to leave you feeling calm, refreshed, and motivated to raise more money online. So just go to www.digitalfundraisingformula.com. That's digitalfundraisingformula.com. Enroll now and don't miss it. Class starts September 12th. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. Thrilled to have you here as usual. And I'm your host, Julia Campbell. And today we're going to be talking all things boards, board development, how to engage your boards, how to get them to understand the scope of their responsibilities. And I have a special guest, Mickey Desai. He's the founder of Nonprofit Snapshot LLC, which is a for-profit company that provides assessment tools and support to a national audience of consultants who work with nonprofit entities. He's creating a soon-to-be-released app, which we will definitely talk about. He's also a podcaster. He hosts the nonprofit Snapcast, and he's a serial entrepreneur. He also has a hobby podcast, The Thing About Cars. So if you're into cars, definitely check that out. So welcome, Mickey. Thanks for being on the show. Julia, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yay. Well, how'd you get into this work? And tell me more about being a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, I, I like Cheerios a lot. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. I like Cheerios <laughs> a lot too. <laughs> I came out of the nonprofit sector in around 2008 when the economy was not doing very well. And that's the time when I first invented the nonprofit snapshot. I started my business in um, 2010. So I hear you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I launched it all back then. And the snapshot itself has been on and off the shelf along with the Snapcast, the podcast, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, but the the Snapcast was meant to be a podcast to facilitate some of the marketing and some of the discussions around the Snapshot starting back in 2008. But the Snapcast has taken on a life of its own, and I've gotten this this nice niche that uh, it's a small niche, but it's definitely an involved niche of listeners that has given me something of a national footprint, which I'm very grateful for. And it's a national bit of exposure that I never thought I would get. And we haven't even started talking about the Snapshot yet. The Snapcast is just conversations with me and other nonprofit leaders, sometimes other consultants, about the work that they do, trying to share tips and tricks and best practices for nonprofit management. I know you know that story. 
And I try to keep my episodes kind of short. And it's just amazing the number of people who will call me up to say, hey, Mickey, I've got something I want to share. Can I be your guest on the show? So it's, it, it's been, yeah, it's been kind of cool. When I started the snapshot back in 2008 is when I decided that I was going to put my finger in as many different entrepreneurial pies as I could stand at the time, which in hindsight was maybe something of a mistake. I think, I think it's better to do one at a time instead of, uh, you know, several trying to do several at once, but I've dabbled in app making and I've dabbled in game development and I'm, an, I'm a nerd. So I do a lot, bunch of different things. So that's in a very quick nutshell how it's gone since 2008. But prior to that, I was heavily entrenched in the nonprofit sector. I did a lot of fundraising and development around town here in Atlanta, Georgia. It was two experiences in particular that I thought did not go very well. In fact, I think I was something of a failure coming out of two different development experiences, two different leadership experiences. And I was trying to soothe my wounds by writing a white paper about how those two failures had gone. And that turned into the nonprofit snapshot. So instead of coming up with an essay, I actually fleshed out the essay and, and turned it into this snapshot, which is a micro assessment of a nonprofit's management practices. It's designed to met. Originally, it was designed to let me walk into a nonprofit, interview three people, and then generate a report card that said, okay, let's pick a nonprofit. Let's pick, um, let's pick a Habitat affiliate. This Habitat affiliate, a, you know, small Habitat affiliate may get a B plus, and then we'll explain why. And then why is divided up amongst 10 different subject matter areas. So I've appified the entire process. Step two is to do an alpha test, get some feedback on that. So the alpha test is going to happen any day now. I just need to pull the trigger and get my ducks in a row there. And then step three is to scale it. And, you know, um, so that if we were assessing different kinds of nonprofits, we may ask different kinds of questions like an ecumenical after school care program may have different questions asked of them than say, like a, a grassroots arts entity or something like that. Yeah, tell me more about the app. What's it going to be called and who is it for? It's going to be called The Snapshot. And, uh, and, and, and the audience for that is hopefully a nationwide body of consultants who just want to license the thing and use it in their consultancy practices across the country. And my goals are actually pretty modest. I would simply like to get 10 users in every major metropolitan area to use it with the intent of keeping the licensing fee pretty small so that it's accessible. You know, let's, let's see if we can just help shine a light, you know, that, that good five mile perspective on, on management practices. And it, the snapshot, I should say, is not meant to solve problems, right? The snapshot is meant to simply illuminate where the deficiencies are from a management perspective. And so that way, you know, all I'm doing is putting the, the stethoscope in a consultant's toolkit. They can pull it out and use it to figure out where the actual work needs to get done. I'm again, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's, it's designed to shorten discovery phase for a consultant and it's designed to help make an organization not waste their time and resources on stuff they don't need. And one example I point out is I did a, a snapshot for a local mental health entity that thought they needed a marketing consultant. And they did. They needed some marketing help, but they needed a lawyer first. They didn't realize that. And in their case, it was for fairly simple and obvious reasons. It's just no one ever thought that they needed to cover their, their HIPAA angle <laughs> and get all that protected before they started working with a third party. So, Wow. So it's illuminating gaps. Yeah, it's exactly pretty much. And I confess, you know, between you and me and your listeners, there's something of an ulterior motive behind the snapshot because it's meant to be something of a board education platform. It's not like it can't be that, right? It is simply just a micro assessment, but 
almost everything the snapshot measures comes down th- from board leadership, right? Does, is the board equipping their staff to do certain things? And so I've, you know, interviewed people for the snapshot who, who are like, oh, I did not know we need to do that. And yes, there you go. There's your education. Let's, let's talk about making a plan. Oh, that's interesting. So I didn't know the board needed to do that. I love that. So that leads us into talking about boards. So where is your current focus? What are you most passionate about? Oh, that's a good question. I think that in terms of the work I get to do with nonprofits, it's teaching boards the full scope of their responsibilities because I meet a lot of, especially amongst the small to medium-sized nonprofits, I'm still meeting boards who don't understand what it is that board members do, or at least not, the, not have a full understanding of what fiduciary responsibility means. And, and I love teaching them what that means. So what does that mean? There's two ways that I like to say uh, what, what board members do. And the polite way is that if you're a board member, you know, your board has to be your primary philanthropic concern for the year. And therefore, you should be a doer, a donor, and a door opener for your board. Do you need to be all three? You need to be all three. And if you can't be all three, please help your organization find people who can. There's a nicer way to say this, which is bring your time, your treasures, and your talents and do all three. And that's a little little more sugarcoating for folks. But I like doer, donor, and door opener. I think you should powerfully arrive and, and be at the table and do things for your nonprofits. And that's participating in the functions of some committee, whether it's an events function or finance, you know, taking a look at finances and raising a red flag whenever necessary, you know, helping, helping do forecasting for your nonprofit. There's any number of things that a board member should be doing and can easily do for their nonprofits, but a lot of folks are uneducated in what their options are and simply fall into this rut of they just show up and vote on minutes and, and, uh, and take a look at the agenda for the next month, and that's not enough. So do that and uh, be a door opener. And I, I tell folks that means, you know, open up your Rolodex and figure out how you can be that, that evangelical ambassador for your organization and spread the word about what it is that you're working on so that they can also become partners, even if it's just financial. And that's, you know, build those giving circles is what I, I like to encourage boards to do so that every board member has their own little social circle of, of maybe five to 10 people that get together for a quarterly lunch and they throw some money in a pot and that becomes a giving circle for the nonprofit. And there's easy ways to do that sort of thing. And there's more complex ways to do that sort of thing. But I think every board member should absolutely be opening their Rolodex to bring people to the nonprofit, whether it's for skills or for just for resources. And then, you know, be a donor. Uh, like, like we said, be a doer, donor, and door opener, the donor being the last one. That nonprofit is your primary philanthropic concern for that year. And I've met people who are like, Mickey, can't I be on more than one board at a time? It would be time consuming. Yeah, it would be terribly time consuming. I think that's a recipe for madness. But, uh, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think it's better for a nonprofit to get 100% of you than it is for three to get 30% of you. So, um, you know, if you really want to maximize your impact, choose one, choose one that you love a lot and make them your primary philanthropic concern for the year is the phrase I keep coming back to. The other thing I tell nonprofits, which is, sounds kind of crass, is we encourage boards to achieve 100% board level giving. So, you know, many grants are now saying you can't apply for this grant unless every single member of your board has become a donor. And what that means in terms of giving levels is a whole nother conversation for a different podcast, I think. But I tell nonprofits that if you're a board member and you're making your annual gift to your board, and if you can write that check without thinking about it, it's not big enough. And people look at me funny when I say that. 
again, to me, it all goes back to impact and fiduciary responsibility. If, if that nonprofit is your primary financial concern, as it should be, then you should be helping them throw the biggest punch they can. And that means thinking really strongly about maximizing your financial contributions to the organization along with, uh, you know, bringing your time and your talents to the table. What if there are very large economic disparities in terms of board members? So I've been on boards where there have been former clients on the board, where there were young people on the board, and then there were clearly established business people, established, you know, people that had established their businesses and were able to give more. So should there be a range? Yeah, you know, I, I think the nonprofit needs to sit down and, and figure out their own policies on what board giving limits should be. I'm I'm personally not a fan of setting those financial requirements. I'm okay with setting targets personally, but I think you're right. I think there needs to be a range whether or not that range is documented. And so what I've told boards is if you're able to give five bucks and that's what you can give, then thoughtfully make that $5 gift. But if it can be a $10 gift, then think about that and make the $10 gift. And, and I, you know, same thing, the same dynamic applies for the larger donors. If you can quickly write a thousand dollar check, that's great. With a little more thought and planning, could it be a $3,000 gift? So that's what I encourage them to do. And so, you know, give, give to your limit, but put some real thought into what that limit is, is what I tell boards. And then as we both know, there are other nonprofits that simply set prescribed giving thresholds for board membership. And, and that's fine. But like you say, I think they should be staggered to the audience, right? They should definitely be reachable by, by everyone who's on your board. And that butts up against a conversation about board diversity, which is also yes, another podcast. I was just ask so, yeah. <laughs> How do we increase the diversity, not even just in race, but diversity in background, diversity in experience, diversity in economic status, diversity in what they do. And I don't have the answer to that. I've got some ideas, <laughs> but what do you usually recommend to your clients? There are a lot of really good ideas out there on how to increase diversity. And many nonprofits actually come up with, I think, a roadmap for how do you target various populations for recruitment purposes. I'm working on a couple of blog pieces that might eventually address that. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, not sure I'm the DEI expert on the matter here, but I think the nonprofit should absolutely strive to bring people in. I've heard nonprofits actually bring some of their recipients into the table as voting board members, or if they can't be board members, at least have an advisory committee of some sort that includes people who are reserving, receiving the services of the nonprofit. I'm not sure I've answered your question, however. No, it's a challenging topic because... I think that nonprofit boards are really kind of the last frontier of being disrupted <laughs> and changing. And at least what I've seen locally, it still is, okay, who's rich in this community? Who has a lot of money? Not necessarily who's going to be passionate, who's going to be effective. So how can we sort of change that mindset around just looking for the quote unquote rich people, the people that have the resources and look more to the people that are maybe passionate or maybe have influence, but it's not as apparent. 
I mean, it's it's that mix, right? It's, it, it, I'm 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 falling over myself here trying to differentiate between a board member's ongoing need to find access to resources, along with an ongoing need to find voices at the table to make sure that they're doing the right job and that they're not neglecting other potential stakeholders in the equation. So everybody has something to bring to the table, and even a recipient still has time, treasures, and talents, even if they're not as large as a corporate executives are right so i I think you simply honor people people's contributions when they can knowing that the diverse mix of voices at your table actually makes for a more powerful nonprofit than one that that is homogenous in makeup so how do we get board members on board like how do we get them to understand the scope of their responsibilities depending on maybe our nonprofit and what we need. I mean, smaller nonprofits probably need more hands-on, maybe people inviting people to buy a table or maybe actually doing work for the nonprofit. I've definitely worked with small nonprofits that have board members that do actual work. And then how do we get them to understand how their oversight responsibilities work? And I'm sure you hear this all the time. What I'm thinking of is that nonprofit that says to me, oh, my board doesn't do anything. My board doesn't do anything. What's the answer to that? One of the best tools I've seen is to hand board members a menu. Oh, I love it. Like an a la carte. It, it, that's exactly right. And it looks like a restaurant menu and they get to pick an entree and they get to pick an appetizer and they get to pick a dessert. And the entrees are things like, I should have I should have pulled this up before we started this conversation. You know, it's, it's like the, the, the appetizers are like bring a list of ten people that the organization can call with the attempt to you know convert them into donors. And the entree is like organize an event as part of a fundraising committee and uh, maybe chair a silent auction you know committee. I mean, I'm, these these are sort of old school ideas at this point because of pandemic. But then the desserts are something like handwrite thank you cards to 10 donors at the end of every board meeting or something like that. So that way the board member has a definitive list of things that they're willing to do and can put their name on it and literally sign the menu and say, here are the things that I can do. And so who, if there's a staff person at the organization who can wrangle all these things, that person can then pick up the phone and say, hey, Julia, you said that you knew three people in this, in this part of the world that can help us achieve you know, our goals X, Y, and Z. Can we have that conversation now? And that's how I think the work should get done. Prior to me talking about the menu idea, I also thought about what it takes to get a small board to understand the kind of work that they have to do. And part of me thinks that we're neglecting one crucial ingredient about board service, and that is it should be as fun as possible. Working for a, a nonprofit is is already something of a high burnout proposition. It's an uphill struggle to get the funding to make the world a better place. And too many of us know that story in very painful ways. So, you know, board service should be as socially fulfilling and as fun as it can possibly be. And that's up to the board to figure out how they're going to do that. I agree. I think we need to flip board meetings on their head. So how do we get get out of the cycle of, like you said before, board members are just there to kind of rubber stamp the minutes? What can we do to make our meetings a little more engaging, other than maybe having pizza? <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> or having it at a brewery or whatever. There's lots of breweries here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, one effective tool, I, there are two things that I can think of and now that I'm thinking about it. One effective tool is to bring a stakeholder into a board meeting, a recipient, and let them tell their story at a board meeting. 
Another thing that I've done with the boards that I've served on is to make sure the mission is printed at the bottom of every agenda in the footer so that you don't forget on what you're working on. So, but, but I think having that stakeholder voice at the table is pretty invaluable and, you know, take the moment to honor that person's journey and that, that person's struggle and to have fun with them. You know, don't forget that what you're doing definitely has a human component. Even if, even if you're working on the arts, even if you're working on animal welfare causes, you know, none of that's relevant without the human component. I sit on the school board here and so much of the work we do is bureaucratic and perfunctory and just not rubber stamping. We never rubber stamp anything, but literally like, you know, green lighting a grant for something or looking through the budget. And my favorite meetings are when we have the students come and present to us certain things that they're doing, or when we see student projects, when we actually get to remember, oh yeah, we are, we are doing a lot more than just the budget and negotiating with the union and running through all of the requirements and all of the stuff, the, the um, bureaucratic stuff that we have to do that's very important. But I love when the mission comes full circle. And for me, I try to spend a lot of time, I have two kids in the schools, so I'm I touch the schools. I'm, I'm in the schools all the time. But for me, I really try to keep that mission at the forefront because I think as a board member, like school boards, it's the same. We have a fiduciary responsibility and we have to remember our mission is 100% on the students. And sometimes it can get kind of convoluted and sometimes it can get messy. But remembering that I love that printing the mission at the bottom of every agenda. Do you think that board members should be receiving or seeking out regular professional development? And what does that look like? I think the answer is yes, even though it's hard for board members to find it. There's, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a, a series that they offer here in Atlanta. There's actually a couple of them. One of them is the United Way VIP program, which is a 10-week board training endeavor, which take, and, and I don't, it may have changed in scope, but when I did it, it was 10 weeks. And on each of the 10 weeks, they picked a subject related to some aspect of board uh, management and, you know, everything from fundraising to volunteer management, to taking a good look at mission and vision and things like that. So those kinds of things are usually pretty accessible in most major cities. The Atlanta Women's Foundation here in Atlanta has something called Women on Board, which is also a board training endeavor for women who want to look at board service. Any option like that, I think, is a good one. Frankly, Julia, I think maybe you and I should write a book called Board Board Service for Dummies 101 or something like that. Yes. Um, <laughs> is there one? We need one. We need one, definitely. I think it would be a, a pretty straightforward write. There are a lot of handbooks out there, but I think they're very dry. And I think they're very, they're just a list of a checklist. Exactly. They're just checklists. I mean, you can a- approach the whole thing really forensically if you want to. And I don't think, I think that's sort of a mistake. But, you know, like we said, put real life into your board members and realize that everyone at the table is someone who's giving their time. And therefore, that time should be rewarded with pure human connection. Is, is, it sounds hokey as hell, but I, I, I think that's the, the, end, the end result. That's where everything happens is, is by affecting each other as humans. We talked about bringing the cause to the table. And just to wrap that up, I was part of the Georgia Lake Society board for a while, and they would actually hold their meetings on lakes, not literally on pontoon boats or anything, but there would be like, you know, facilities on lakes that we would go and and take breaks throughout our meeting to go appreciate the lakes or do a little field trip around the lake and look at wetlands and stuff like that. You know, that kind of thing just puts a real 
presence to the to the work that you're hoping you get to do on a much larger scale. Exactly. I think board meetings that, you know, there, there's something to be said for board meetings held at like the Ritz-Carlton, right? That's fine if you want to do that. But holding a board meeting, if you're able to at the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club or the after-school program or in the shelter, wherever it is, I think that's that's something that's really powerful. And I think the board members really appreciate it. I also find that board members sometimes they don't want to ask for a tour or they don't they don't want to step on the toes of the development director the ed sometimes they do and i know some people listening i know especially some of my clients <laughs> are like oh no they do want to step on our toes then there's the other angle where i think they a lot of board members especially new board members younger board members they are just listening learning and they don't want to encroach and they don't want to put more work on the plate of the development director or the ED. So any way that we can be proactive and in inviting them into our work or even just having lunch with them and coffee with them. And I, I remember being a development director and having to manage the board with the ED. And my board was absolutely lovely and wonderful. And of course, we have to understand, like you said, they're humans. There's going to be a few of them you don't get along with. There's going to be a few of them that you really like. It's just human nature. And there's also seasons. So sometimes a board member might be having a new baby or sometimes a board member might be going through tax season or we have to understand that they're human, they're volunteers, they're dedicated to the cause, but there are different, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know. Exactly. That's exactly right. You, you touched on something a second ago. You know, I've, I've often said that it's um, the nonprofit's duty to make sure that their development people get to interact with every single board member to help the development effort. And I think that, you know, new board members should not wait for the development director to call them. I think new board members should get on and, and learn the machinations of the actual nonprofit. But then that new board member should be proactive in calling at least the development director, if not the executive director, to say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee and, and, and talk more about, you know, the immediate board agenda for me as an individual. And uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Well, tell me about your podcast. I love talking to other podcasters. How long have you been doing the nonprofit Snapcast? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm losing track of time. I want to say that I've been doing it in earnest for going on four years now, maybe less than that, maybe four. I don't know. And uh, I can try to look that up here in the background while we're talking. But technically, I started it back in 2008 when I started the nonprofit Snapshot. And I did a few episodes back then, but 2008 was not really prime time for podcasts. You're ahead of the curve. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, three years. Uh, my, my, po my podcast host says that I've been doing this for three years. I've done how many episodes? 279 episodes in that time. And it's just been a ton of fun meeting people across the country. In fact, across the world to talk about various nonprofit things that apply to an American nonprofit audience. So I'm really enjoying that kind of interaction with folks. What are some of your most memorable podcasts? You don't have to call people out by name, but some nuggets of information that stuck with you. There was one woman who's got a, an accounting and a finance background who talked about the most damaging mistakes people can make with the Form 990. That one, you know, it seems like a really dry topic, and it is, right? It's just finance. People, and I'm one of those people who looks at spreadsheets and I start to glaze over once I get past the second column. You know, that's that kind of thing. 
is I think in, incredibly valuable to think about your 990 as, as being a central pillar of what finance is supposed to be for your organization and, and, and to use it as a tool. I've had another guest who said you should be using your 990 as a tool to help your nonprofit tell its story. And I think that that was an interesting way to look at the, the 990 and not just, a, not just an IRS obligation that costs you money to do at the end of the year, right? I did a case study with an organization out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, with one consultant talking about some assessment work that they did with uh, one of his clients. And that was, I think, great. I, I would like to do more case studies to talk about interventions to help nonprofits improve either leadership or programs. There's something I want to do just to turn the table a little bit. I would like to, I would like to do a, a, a CRM bake-off it's been on my desk for a long time, and I just haven't put any money into uh, money. I haven't put any CRM time into it. Off. <laughs> yeah, we were going to call it a cage match originally, but then, <laughs> but then decided that maybe that was a little too aggressive or violent. So, <laughs> so CRM bake off. When the intent there was to create an actual ladder system to get people to debate the various merits and downfalls of uh, of their chosen CRM system, and then have like a final four moment or uh, semifinals or something like that leading down to whoever. So like March Madness? It's something like that. You know, we'll start with maybe six to eight of the bigger ones. You know, there's Donor Perfect, there's Salesforce, there's, uh, uh, gosh, I can't think of the others now. All of a sudden, oh, Black Blackboard, Neon One. Thank you. Yeah. Forgive me, my lovely friends who work at all of these. Yes. And then I have so many friends that work at CRMs, like QGive and Bloomerang and Little Green Light. And there's so many, but you're right. You need to do it tiered. Exactly. It needs to be tiered. My original thought, one of the original thought was just to put four of them on mic at once and let them have it out. And I'm like, no, that's not organized. Okay. Well, I, I'm sure you do too. I know a lot of people and they're probably, some of them are listening. So if you're interested in a CRM bake-off, <laughs> <laughs> contact Mickey and Mickey, that's a perfect segue. Where can people contact you? Yeah, folks can easily find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Mickey Desai. That's D as in David, E-S-A-I. And it's Mickey like mouse, but don't get me sued by Disney for anything. They've got bigger fish to fry these days, I think. I think they do, yes. But otherwise, you know, the Nonprofit Snapcast website is a good way to get me. That's nonprofitsnapcast.org. And nonprofitsnapshot.org is also sending emails directly to me. But uh, LinkedIn works just as well as email. And I'm happy to talk to anyone about any number of things as they relate to nonprofit management. Awesome. Thanks, Mickey, for being here. It was fun. Julia, this has been great. Thanks for having me on. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then you can find me on Instagram at Julia Campbell, seven, seven, keep changing the world. You nonprofit unicorn. Mm-hmm.